From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Basil Valentine on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Today is Thursday the 16th of November and welcome to Compass with me, Basil Valentine, the voice of sanity. This is your World News Hour here on TNT. There is conflict and tension around the world, but there are moves on the diplomatic front. We'll have the latest from the Middle East conflict and also Myanmar, where rebels are threatening to overturn the ruling hunter. Also today, the ASEAN Defence Chiefs Summit and how artificial intelligence and Hollywood have struck a deal. Also, the latest from Iceland, where whole towns may have to be abandoned if the seismic and volcanic activity doesn't calm down. But first, the other stories making the headlines as we go around the compass. And we begin in San Francisco, where the United States host year of the APEC, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Organization, is focusing on three overreaching policy priorities, interconnectedness, innovation, and inclusivity. Our first priority is interconnected, building a resilient and interconnected region that advances broad-based economic prosperity. That is the press release. And now here is the BBC's report on the summit in San Francisco. World leaders are arriving in San Francisco for the ongoing summit of the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC for short. But all eyes will be on the US President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping. They are set to meet for talks on the sidelines. The leaders of the world's two biggest economies have a lot to discuss, not least their ongoing disputes over trade, technology, Taiwan, and the drug fentanyl. The BBC's James Clayton is in San Francisco and sent us the very latest. Well, APEC has started here and it's a, a really a huge moment for the city of San Francisco. It's the biggest summit to be held here since the United Nations Charter was signed here in 1945. And this is really a huge economic summit. You're talking about more than 50% of all of the world's trade belongs to the 21 uh, nations who will be attending here this week. Uh, and you're talking about 40% of the world's population, by the way. So it's a big economic conference, but by far the biggest ticket item here is the meeting between Joe Biden, President Biden, and his counterpart in China, President Xi Jinping. Now, relations between those two nations have not been particularly good of late. They last met last year in Indonesia. And since then, you had that uh, moment where uh, the American government shot down a Chinese spy balloon. You've had uh, flaming tensions in the South China Sea. And you've also had Joe Biden ramping up a ban on high-level chips, which really hurts that ch the Chinese economy. So diplomatic uh, sort of tensions between those two uh, countries, but there has been a sort of thawing in recent times uh, and there have been uh, a number of discussions recently. Now, there is no real indication that any high-level agreements will be made here this week, but there are hopes that at least the country's militaries between China and America will actually begin speaking again. And there might be some announcements around things like artificial intelligence and the production of fentanyl. A lot of the uh, fentanyl on the streets of San Francisco actually comes from China through Mexico and across the border. So there might be a few things that the two countries can agree on, but I think there isn't much hope from what I can see that there's going to be any kind of high-level diplomatic agreement here. James Clayton there in San Francisco. Well, after months of build-up, lower-level meetings, but disputes rumbling on in the background, this is quite a moment. KD Russ is Professor and Chair of Economics at the University of California, Davis. She told me there is a lot on the table to discuss. I think we saw the beginning of a thaw with Secretary Yellen's visit to China in July, and hopefully this meeting will build on that you know it's four hours long as opposed to the last meeting between the two leaders which is three hours long so all of this bodes well uh even so though on the eve of it we heard comments uh, from joe biden saying china has real problems i mean that feels like it's not off to a, to a great start before they've even sat down 
Yes, there's always some posturing, but I think at this point, you know, China's still suffering from a hangover after the, an economic hangover, I should say, after the prolonged uh, lockdowns and is really looking for ways to stimulate um, their economy. Uh, the U.S. is overheating to some degree. I mean, we actually nearly hit China's own growth um, target ourselves with 4.9% uh, growth um, uh, in the last quarter this year. So, um, you know, I, I think there are some opportunities here for um, both countries to seize on a thaw. It would be helpful if the U.S. were able to use some of these economic levers to try to gain uh, additional partnership or at least less uh, confrontation uh, from China um, in issues such as the conflict in the Middle East and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, of course, the two superpowers do have that kind of, well, the influence, the responsibility on the global stage as well. I mean, as you touched on there, I'd imagine those topics will come up and they are very important too. Absolutely. I mean, we're already seeing talk of an agreement um, to to limit use of uh, AI in um, military applications, especially controlled nuclear weapons. Um, there's talk of a deal on fentanyl trade to cut down on that. Um, that you just heard an announcement in the last um, few hours about uh, agreement to resume climate talks. Uh, all of this occurs in the context of continuing trade tensions. You know, um, as, as was mentioned, the U.S. has not lifted the Section 301 tariffs on Chinese goods. Um, we continue to uh, limit uh, exports of semiconductors to China in some key ways. So, you know, it, it's not a panacea, but just this thawing, this continued conversation, um, this warming of talk about uh, the economy, climate and other issues is, is a significant um, advance, I think. Joe Biden said yesterday after meeting Xi that he had not changed his view that the Chinese president is effectively a dictator, a comment likely to land with a thud in Beijing after the two leaders held straightforward summit talks. Biden held a solo news conference after four hours of talks with Xi at an estate on the outskirts of San Francisco. At the end of the news conference, he was asked whether he still held the view that Xi is a dictator, something he had said in June. Look, he is. He's a dictator in the sense that he's a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that's based on a form of government totally different than ours, Biden said. Last March, Xi clinched a third time as president when nearly 3,000 members of China's rubber stamp parliament, the National People's Congress, voted unanimously for him in an election in which there was no other candidate. In response to Biden's remarks, China's foreign ministry said it strongly opposes the comments without mentioning Biden by name. This statement is extremely wrong and irresponsible political manipulation, said Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning speaking to reporters at a routine briefing today. It should be, should be pointed out that there will always be some people with ulterior motives who attempt to incite and damage US-China relations. They are doomed to fail. Mao refused to specify the identity of some people in answer to a follow-up question. In spite of Biden's remarks, the US and China have agreed to resume military-to-military -military communications in an effort to ease rising tensions. Biden also said, we're back to direct, open, clear communications. Direct, open and clear communications will undoubtedly be necessary to avoid confrontation between the superpowers, with tensions in the South China Sea particularly high, as we can hear now from NHK World. And that lack of communication has led to some close calls as both sides flex their military strength in the South China Sea. Japan, Australia, Canada and the U.S. held joint military drills in the area last week. The U.S. Navy sent two aircraft carriers for the exercise. American officials stressed the need for deterrence amid tensions in Ukraine and the Middle East. So the security of this maritime region is important to the entire world. 
And so by sailing and operating here with the USS Ronald Reagan and the USS Carl Benson, it's a clear demonstration of how important our Navy's uh, feel the, the security of this region is. The U.S. has been increasingly critical of the Chinese military's activities. Footage released by the U.S. military appears to show a Chinese plane cutting close to American aircraft. Flares, flares. The U.S. also released video appearing to show another case of a Chinese plane flying abnormally close to U.S. aircraft. Washington says there have been over 180 such incidents in the past two years, more than the 10 years before combined. The Department of Defense claims China is trying to discourage U.S. military activity near areas claimed by Beijing. This is yet another disturbing sign of the PLA's coercive and risky operational behavior. These images and videos speak for themselves. In response, the Chinese military released its own video in October. It claims the U.S. warship on the right rushed into the path of a Chinese vessel. China accused the U.S. of engaging in dangerous maneuvers. It was the U.S. side that came to China's doorstep to provoke and stir up trouble. China will take every necessary measure to protect its sovereignty, security. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we go to Jakarta for the latest from the Defence Ministers of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. We'll be right back. You should hear what Greg Maybury is talking about. We talk of an impending third world war reaching fever at the pitch. Perhaps it's time for us all to come to terms with some little known history regarding the causes of the first two. Our past is not quite as cut and dried as our history books would have us all believe, which is an understatement of epic dimensions. I know this because I used to teach history. Although I wasn't aware of it at the time, I now know pretty much well everything that I ever taught my students about both wars was uh, a distortion of the truth at best, if not an outright lie, via omission of inconvenient facts and realities. And the historical record was compiled to distort the truth, thereby keeping it hidden from future generations, and I might add there too from perhaps future history teachers like myself and those to come. The bottom line is that the great powers that be, past and present, do not want the critical masses discovering who the really bad guys were or are, what motivated them to instigate these wars, and how they were able to pull it all off without people smelling a rat. This so they could do it all over again when they deemed the occasion demanding it. And it now seems like that occasion has arrived again. The No Fly Zone with Greg Maybury on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Take us back in time. And who was Mike Flynn? He was the National Security Advisor to the President. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming President of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. This moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism, or you're talking about communism. Socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism, but the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization and brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. 
So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. People will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com. Basil Valentine and Compass, Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the program. Noting the tensions in the South China Sea between China and both the Philippines and the United States, defense ministers of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in Jakarta also reiterated the significance of maintaining freedom of navigation and overflight in the South China Sea and respecting international rules to prevent maritime clashes in disputed waters. Details now on the importance of peace in the region in this special report from Channel News Asia. Singapore Defence Minister Ng Eng Hen cautions his regional counterparts that peace can be lost or stolen very quickly if leaders do not pay attention. The lesson for us in this region is that while we are now a relative area of peace and security, we can lose it if we as leaders in our nations do not pay attention. And I dread to think what would happen if there was conflict in Asia. I'm not sure that the world can stomach or tolerate a war in Europe the deteriorating situation in Middle East and Asia. Dr. Ng is attending the 17th ASEAN Defence Ministers' Meeting in Jakarta. He joins his counterparts in expanded discussions with dialogue partners, including the US, China, Japan and South Korea, tomorrow. The ASEAN Defence Ministers have reaffirmed their commitment to strengthen cooperation to address regional security challenges. US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin has also pledged a strong US support and commitment to the region. Host Indonesia touched on the conflicts in Gaza, Myanmar and Ukraine in its opening speech. CNA's Chatni Vadvani reports. Strong words from Indonesia's Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto as he put the spotlight on Gaza, Myanmar and Ukraine in his opening remarks at the ASEAN Defence Minister's meeting. Addressing his counterparts from the bloc, Mr Prabowo said Indonesia is deeply saddened by the deteriorating situation in Gaza, particularly what he called horrid humanitarian conditions, as he reiterated the country's position in calling for a ceasefire. We push and we call for immediate cessation of hostilities and the immediate setting up of corridors for humanitarian assistance. The violence against the population, the civilian population, must stop. Indonesia has also proposed to deploy a hospital ship for medical treatment to victims from Gaza and has extended an offer of care in Indonesia's hospitals if needed while remaining committed to providing aid to those affected. The minister called upon all nations to undertake similar measures to help ease the suffering of the Palestinian people whom he said have been enduring displacement from their homes for decades. Malaysian Defence Minister Mohammad Hassan stated that they too showed solidarity with Indonesia on the arising conflict. On Myanmar, Mr Prabowo said the situation was deteriorating. As chair of ASEAN, he said Indonesia continues to push for concrete progress toward a peaceful solution and he encouraged other ASEAN members to lend the same support. Ukraine was also cited as an example of intensifying conflicts in various regions of the world together with ongoing conflicts in the Middle East. Mr. Prabowo warned of threats of severe humanitarian crises. The ASEAN Defence Minister's meeting, plus and related meetings, aim to foster dialogue and advance collaboration among defence establishments in the region. The two-day event, which also features key players in the Indo-Pacific, looks to address the security 
security challenges that may hinder the realization of Indonesia's ASEAN chairmanship theme, ASEAN Matters, the epicentrum of growth. Chani Vatvani, CNA, Jakarta. The 10-nation ASEAN group includes Myanmar, but its defence minister was again barred from attending this week's summit due to the military government's failure to comply with a five-point police plan drafted to ease the violence in that country. The rebel offensive we reported on yesterday is making progress in its bid to topple the junta in power. Here's the latest now from DW News. Anti-junta rebels in Myanmar have taken control of some border outposts with India after forcing Myanmar army soldiers to flee. Dozens of troops crossed over to India to escape attacks by rebels. The violence in Chin state on the border with India is the latest of two new fronts that rebels have opened against the junta. The other is in Rakhine state. A joint coalition of rebels began a new offensive that rebels have opened against the junta. The other is in Rakhine state. A joint coalition of rebels began a new offensive against the Myanmar army in October, beginning in northern Shan state on the border with China. The UN now says more than 200,000 people have been displaced due to the fighting. It's also the most serious challenge to the junta since it assumed power in a coup in 2021. Serious enough for China to call for a stop to the fighting and for the president of Myanmar to warn that the country could be at risk of breaking apart. Gunshots ring out at the border between Myanmar and India. As rebels in Myanmar fight the military junta. Thousands of people are fleeing the chaos and crossing over into India. Among them, soldiers from Myanmar's military junta. Many soldiers are surrendering to Mizoram state police. Others arrive injured. And 39 of them surrendered to Mizoram police last evening. As per order from MHA, we hand them over to border guarding force, that is samurai for yesterday late in the evening. This morning again, we still capture two Myanmar army and apart from that another one is also injured. Within Myanmar, rebel groups have been gaining ground since October. They've taken control of several towns and security outposts in an effort to overthrow the military junta. Rebels seen here from the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army released this footage, showing what they say is a tank abandoned by the junta and a valuable stockpile of weapons now in their possession. Myanmar's junta came to power in 2021 in a coup, but its authority has never been challenged before at this level. Officials in neighboring China say they are worried about this conflict destabilizing the region. We are highly concerned about the conflict in northern Myanmar and urge all parties in Myanmar to immediately cease fire and stop fighting and ensure security and stability along the China-Myanmar border. For now, fighters on both sides look set to continue. The junta leaders saying they will hit back. The rebels determined to march on and rid the country of its dictatorship. Indonesia's Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto said in his opening speech at the ASEAN summit that we are saddened with a deteriorating situation in Myanmar. Indonesia encourages other ASEAN member states to support Myanmar to find a peaceful and durable solution to the current situation. ASEAN has been trying to enforce the plan it forged with Myanmar's top general in 2021, which calls for an immediate end to the violence. The start of talks brokered by a special envoy among contending parties and the delivery of aid to displaced people. But Myanmar's military government has done little to enforce the plan.
We're going to take a break for the headlines now. When we come back, we'll have the latest from the Middle East, including a full report on the Israeli raid on the Al Shifa Hospital. We'll be right back. Now, 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 now. news. Big news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Israel has reportedly pulled its troops out of Gaza's Al Shifa Hospital 10 hours after raiding the facility. The ground is opening up in the Icelandic town of Grindavik as the threat of a volcanic eruption looms. And North Korea has bound an overwhelming military response after the United States and South Korea unveiled a new deterrent strategy aimed at Pyongyang. For a complete list of shows and our schedule offered on TNT Radio, simply visit our website at tntradio.live. We serve up the latest live news and current affairs presented by a host of credible and expert commentators who can separate fact from fiction, truth from propaganda, keeping you in the loop on TNT Radio. And welcome back to the program today, Thursday, the 15th of November. While the deadly aerial bombardments continue in Palestine on the ground in Gaza, the focus has been on the Al-Shifa hospital, which Israel raided yesterday, searching for weapons and Hamas fighters in tunnels, only to find that the tunnels had been concreted up. Details now of the raid from Channel 4 News. It's always hard to hear a baby cry. In Al-Shifa, there were more than 30 premature newborns clustered together, many now orphans. All of them pulled from their incubators after fuel to keep them going ran out. These are some of the last images we have from the hospital. <laughs> Amid smoke and dust, patients being evacuated after what doctors describe as an Israeli strike. Desperate attempts to keep badly injured children alive. Soldiers moved into the building late last night. Since then, it's been difficult to reach anyone there. The Israeli forces are now within the hospital building. They have been moving between the buildings with the troops can be seen uh, within the hospital areas. So um, so it's getting more and more close to our uh, building. We don't know what they want exactly. Israeli troops breached here a few hours ago and we have cleared the area. This evening, the military released a video from the hospital premises showing weapons they said were found inside. A live grenade, ammunition, fighting vest with insignia, boots and of course uniforms, and last but not least, standard AK-47. Though so far they presented no evidence of the massive underground Hamas headquarters Israel alleges lies beneath the hospital. Palestinians claim the assault on al-Shifa shows Israel's unrestrained brutality. Meeting soldiers near the border with Gaza, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu struck a triumphal note. We were told that we won't enter Shifa. We entered. And in the spirit, we say a simple thing. There is no place in Gaza that we will not reach. There is no hiding, no shelter, no refuge for the murderers of Hamas. Israel is now in firm control of much of northern Gaza, or what's left of it. This the parliament reduced to rubble. Could there now be a change in tactics? We asked one former senior commander. The next phase is surgical. I mean, this is special forces, this direct fire. We actually uh, had to break in with this uh, full, uh, full uh, power of our tanks, of our infantry brigades, of our engineering. It's an engineering uh, campaign. But right now that we sit, of course, surgical, this would be the, I think this would be the name of the game. But the cries of pain show no sign of ending. Israel's deadly bombardment continues right across the Gaza Strip. Children rush the hospital following an airstrike in Deir al-Balah. Here, too, share a single stretcher. 
I found three of my children, says Ahmed. The other three are missing. A gentle touch amidst so much suffering. Frozen in shock, who can tell Gaza's children when all this will end? Well, the Israeli military are tonight saying their forces remain inside the Al-Shifa complex and they're continuing to conduct searches there. Uh, we've not been able to speak to any of the doctors that we've been in touch with in recent days. As you saw in that report, the Israeli army is saying that it found a number of weapons uh, during searches uh, of, of the hospital complex. But really, they'd built up this, this huge narrative about this major strategic secretive underground Hamas headquarters beneath the Al-Shifa hospital and really all we've been presented with so far is video of a number of uh, Kalashnikovs and some body armor. Perhaps more evidence, more video evidence will be released in the coming days. Uh, there had been one theory that in uh, after securing large parts of northern Gaza perhaps we might see the Israeli military adopt a new tactic and, and a more restrained approach, particularly given the intense and growing diplomatic pressure on Israel over rising civilian casualties in Gaza. Instead, though, tonight, we've seen leaflets dropped in southern, the southern city of Khan Yunis warning residents of eastern neighborhoods that they need to evacuate. Now, Khan Yunis is where many people in Gaza had already fled to. Three quarters of the population of Gaza have already had to leave their homes. And many people, I think, there will be asking where on earth do we go next? The Palestine Red Crescent Society has published a video on the X platform showing thousands of internally displaced people, among them hospital patients, making the difficult 11 kilometers trek from Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City to southern Gaza. The footage shows people with their bags and belongings in hand walking among the ruins of bombed-out buildings as they try to reach the south. Among them are young children and even wounded and elderly people on stretchers. Dr. Mads Gilbert is a Norwegian physician, humanitarian activist and politician, a specialist in anesthesiology. He's been a regular visitor to the besieged Gaza Strip for many years. He spoke to Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! yesterday, as we can hear. If I should choose today between hell and Shifa, I would choose hell. Uh, I got a report yesterday from the Minister of Health that 20 out of the 23 ICU patients had died. 17 other patients died because of lack of supplies, oxygen and water. And three, if not five, of the 38 premature newborns have died because of this uh, slow suffocation that Israeli occupation army is uh, exposing all the hospitals to by cutting electricity, uh, oxygen and medical supplies. And it's, it's you know, it's uh, beyond description. I'm, I'm out of words to describe this systematic man-made slaughtering of patients in civilian hospitals. And um, when I heard uh, the crowd in the United States shout, you know, no, no ceasefire, I think that's the only place on earth where people are supporting Israel and the other streets of the world are supporting a ceasefire, a human solution, a lift of the siege, and a support for the people of Gaza. So this is a deeply divided world, and the lies are flying around like never before in any war. And I think we need to keep our heads and our hearts calm now and understand that what we are seeing is an unprecedented attack on a civilian society occupied by one of the most brutal and ruthless armies in the world, exercising a systematic attack on civilian health care completely against international law and the standards that we want to apply and being backpadded all the time by the U.S. president. I mean, we're in the darkest time of modern history now. So far, if you look at the U.N. numbers, the U.N. numbers that are coming out every day in their fact sheets, 40,000 Palestinians have been killed or are missing under the rubble, or have been injured for four weeks. 40,000, 6,000 of the killed and missing are children. When did that become defense of a country? When did it become decent to drag neonates out of their incubators and kill children? You know, the only explanation for this is a deep-rooted and very frightening racism. Because you don't do these things to people you consider your equal. I'm extremely disturbed. I'm extremely upset. 
And I blame the European leaders and your president for this bloody bloodshed of people who are being completely defenseless. And I talked to a colleague in Mustafa El-Aqsa in the south yesterday. He told me they were seeing influx of patients coming walking from the north, having followed the Israeli command to leave the north. And they were being shot in the legs and they were treating gunshots in the legs from people trying to escape the north. Just half of a fuel tanker truck was allowed into Gaza yesterday, but the use of that fuel was conditional by Israeli authorities and was forbidden to be used in hospitals, according to Al Jazeera. Every gesture is welcome, but is it enough? No, by far it's not enough. The United Nations Refugee Relief Agency should not be begging for fuel because we need it for our humanitarian operation, said a spokesperson for the United Nations, who described massively overcrowded UNRWA shelters after 70% of the population of Gaza has been displaced. There are nowhere near enough supplies to provide services to all of the internally displaced, stressing above all that the most dire need is for fuel. Tuma also stressed that fuel is being used as a weapon of war in Gaza. Volker Turk is the United Nations refugee chief, and he has briefed states on his recent trip to Egypt and Jordan. Speaking at the United Nations in Geneva, he highlighted the extreme scarcity of food, fuel and medical supplies in Gaza and warned of the consequences of a complete collapse of water, sewage and healthcare services. Massive outbreaks of infectious disease and hunger seem inevitable, he said. Turk also spoke about the increase in settler attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank and once again called for a humanitarian ceasefire. Local Palestinian platforms have published videos on Telegram documenting Israeli forces assaulting blindfolded Palestinian detainees after a large-scale arrest campaign in the town of Hassan near Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank, where there is no Hamas. The silencing of Palestinian voices in international bodies is one of the reasons why the conflict is framed as it is, but Irish politicians at the European Union have been giving Palestinians a platform in Brussels, as we can hear now. We have some Palestinians living in Belgium who have lost incredible numbers of their families back home in Palestine. And we're going to listen to their words today. I have a question for the EU. How many Palestinians need to die for the EU to call for a ceasefire. Until a few days ago, I had lost 52 family members. Every day that number grows, and now it's already at least 55. Yesterday, the Israeli occupation forces committed a massacre in Jabalia camp near my, my family's house, and I can't know anything about them. I came today, and I don't know anything about them. The remaining loved ones are trapped until now under the rubble, until the time we speak. I fall asleep thinking about those images. There is no food, there is no water. My mom said to me we wish to die because she can't see my, my brothers hungry and she can't make anything for them. In the face of this unimaginable tragedy, we must remember the names and stories of those we have lost. Rahaf Abu Mu'aylek, 19 years old. Ranim Abu Mu'aylek, 17 years old. Ragad Abu Mu'aylek, 14 years old. Sami Abu Mu'aylek, 10 years old. Yusuf Abu Mu'aylek, 5 years old. We must honor their memory and demanding accountability and justice and an immediate end to the barbaric attacks that have claimed so many lives so far. You must stop the war against Gaza. It's enough with killing children, enough with killing innocent children. It really is such a difficult moment that we have people here who have to expose their personal grief, to share the memories of their loved ones who are no more. You all know what it's like to lose one family member maybe in a natural death, but to have your entire family wiped out 
in a genocidal assault while the civilised world stands by in silence is just beyond something that should ever be tolerated. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, a volcanic eruption could destroy the Icelandic town of Grindavik. We'll be right back after this break. Get ready. A kill switch could be coming to a vehicle near you and shut you down on the highway. From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The United States Congress just passed a vehicle kill switch that will be required on all vehicles produced in 2026 and forward. This will allow the government to automatically disable your vehicle if, quote, impairment is detected. Here is Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey explaining why he introduced a bill to block it, which failed. It's so incredible that I have to offer this amendment. It almost sounds like the domain of science fiction, that the federal government would put a kill switch in vehicles that would be the judge, the jury, and the executioner on such a fundamental right as the right to travel freely. Imagine a future scenario where your vehicle shuts you down for not having the correct political views or for promoting public health misinformation. This is total control. This is the Great Reset in action. Reject the Great Reset. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. While the mainstream media peddles fear with climate change alarmism, thousands of prominent scientists reject this pseudoscience. For example, Clintel was founded in 2019 by Emeritus Professor of Geophysics Gus Berghout and science journalist Marcel Kroc. This global network of 900 scientists and professionals issued the World Climate Declaration. There is no climate emergency, which was endorsed by numerous experts in the field, including professors of climatology and meteorology and other related scientific disciplines. Good environmental stewardship requires a strong economy. Genuine environmentalists understand this and that a destroyed economy will impoverish billions of people. This would not only be a humanitarian tragedy, but an environmental tragedy in the name of net zero carbon. From world news to global policies and beyond, beyond. this is Compass with Basil Valentine on today's News Talk TNT Radio. In a moment, how artificial intelligence and Hollywood have finally come to terms with each other. But first, a volcanic eruption could destroy the Icelandic town of Grindavik or lead to extensive ash clouds, experts have warned. The country has been shaken by more than 800 small earthquakes in recent days, prompting fears that the tremors could disrupt the Fagdalasjafal volcano on the Reykjans Peninsula in the southwest of the country. Raga Augustadir, who lives close to Grindavik, said residents are fearful of what could happen if an eruption struck. The scenario on the table now is that it will happen in or just north of the town of Grindavik. There is no good option here, she told the independent newspaper. More now in this report from Al Jazeera. The damage in the heart of Grindavik, evidence of the swarm of earthquakes that prompted its evacuation on Friday, and possibly a sign of worse to come. A sudden emission of toxic gas, a possible precursor to an eruption, was enough for authorities to order everyone out. Iceland's civil defence chief clear that the relative calm since Friday doesn't mean the danger is gone. The equipment that we're using for measuring what's going on is uh, equipment that, that measures SO2 gases, which is a, a volcanic gases, uh, would indicate that lava is very close to the surface. So we had a warning from that system, so we evacuated people working in the, in the area. Residents who'd been allowed back in to collect important possessions caught up in this second evacuation. Inga Run had to rely on a friend to get her things. She was away from home on Friday night and now doesn't know when or if she'll be allowed back. For me, I'm completely numb to this. I just haven't processed the feeling right now. So it's really uh, hard for me to understand what's going on, what's happening, what's about to happen and what's the future, what the future holds. Iceland's southwest peninsula has always been a literal hotspot of volcanic activity. It sits on the join where two tectonic plates pull apart. 
Even so, there's been nothing on the scale of this emergency since an eruption in the 13th century. But the fear for this peninsula and the people who live here is that this isn't just about an imminent eruption. It's about a long-term shift into a much more volcanically active and dangerous phase. Rika Peterson has been monitoring Iceland's volatile geology for more than 20 years. She says what's happened in the last few days is evidence of a transition that could last centuries. The last eruption was in 1240, um, but now this is quite an usual pattern. What's seen is that the peninsula will be dormant until a new active period starts, and that can also last several hundreds of years. Fears of an explosive eruption at sea are now diminishing, but a devastating flow of lava could still destroy Grindavik. Iceland's beauty has been forged in part by its 32 active volcanic systems. Its people have had to become resilient to their dangers, but here in the southwest, those dangers are only growing. Harry Fawcett, Al Jazeera, Southern Iceland. Now, if you ever wanted acclaimed broadcaster and documentary filmmaker Sir David Attenborough to narrate your life, you're not alone. And you don't have to keep merely wishing for it anymore. A programmer named Charlie Holtz has turned that wish into reality with artificial intelligence. In a demo video Holtz shared on the X platform, Attenborough's voice can be heard describing Holtz as if he were a character in a film. Here we have a remarkable specimen of Homo sapiens, distinguished by his silver circular spectacles and a mane of tousled curly locks, says Attenborough. Of course, this isn't really Attenborough, it's AI Attenborough. News of this project come as Hollywood grapples with anxiety over AI. Warner Brothers has just announced that it plans to use uh, video footage of Edith Piaf to recreate her in an upcoming film. Details now of how AI and Hollywood have finally done a deal in this report. From actors making peace with bots to why Google wants you to talk to a virtual version of Billie Eilish, this is Generation AI. The Hollywood actor strike came to an end, with AI among the last issues to be hammered out. Union chief negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland hailed the deal. And for the first time, consent, informed consent, and fair compensation guardrails will be in place around the use of artificial intelligence in our industry. Among other measures, studios will now have to get an actor's consent before using their image to create a digital replica. NVIDIA has upgraded its flagship AI chip. It's called the H200 and will roll out next year to customers, including Amazon. NVIDIA already dominates the market for AI chips, and its new model will allow services such as ChatGPT to spit out answers even faster. Reuters sources say Google is in talks to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in character AI. The fast-growing chatbot startup allows people to talk with virtual versions of anime characters and celebrities like Billie Eilish. Most of its traffic is coming from users between the ages of 18 and 24, according to data from SimilarWeb. Facebook parent Meta says advertisers will soon have to disclose when AI has been used to alter or create messages related to politics. They'll have to say if the ads portray real people as doing or saying something they didn't. The new rules kick in next year. And ChatGPT creator OpenAI says it wants to work with other organizations to produce datasets to train AI models. It's looking for deals to access material that expresses human intentions in any language. The aim is to produce more nuanced training data that's more conversational in style. And finally today, the South African unit of U.S. auto giant Ford said yesterday it plans to invest 5.2 billion rand to produce a hybrid vehicle in the country as it urged the government to move fast on an electric vehicle policy. 
Three quarters of coals produced by South Africa's auto industry, which accounts for 5% of total gross domestic product and over 100,000 jobs, are exported, mostly to European countries. Details now in this report from CGTN Africa. Ford is continuing to push the envelope a hundred years after arriving in South Africa. The company's Silverton plant will be the only factory in the world to produce the country's first plug-in hybrid electric pickup, recently unveiled at its centenary celebrations. The uh, Ranger is going to be a 2.3-litre uh, four-cylinder turbocharged engine, which also has a battery that's built into the vehicle that allows the vehicle to operate in dual mode, so it can run off the normal internal combustion engine, but it can also operate in a full electric mode, um, so you actually driving with zero tailpipe emissions in the vehicle. Ford has invested $1.6 billion in 2023 alone to upgrade the Silverton plant and build the next-generation Ranger. It could set in motion a new era of South Africa's automotive industry when it rolls off the production line in 2024. But that really locks down this plant's role in the first phases of electrification. Um, you know, we haven't developed or we haven't made any announcements about further advancements in terms of full electrification of vehicles related to the Ranger um, production line. So this really puts us at the leading edge in terms of new energy vehicle technology. The new line will add hundreds of jobs requiring specialist skills to assemble batteries and build the greener vehicle. The Ranger is going to have a large battery just sitting underneath the tub um, and at the same time once we've got that battery the chassis changes to allow us to accommodate that battery. It has a new engine and powertrain so there's a lot of education that's got to go in with our operators on the shop floor to make sure that, that we keep our employees safe. Despite infrastructure and power challenges, Ford still manages to produce 720 internal combustion engine vehicles a day of which 75% go overseas. The new line will boost production and give the motor company a foot into new markets. We, we said before that um, we're going to now start exporting to Australia and New Zealand after two decades. right? So, that, so that's another market that we're going to export the plug-in hybrid um, um, to. So, so this, this plant continues to grow and the, the number of exports continues to grow. Ford Motor Company follows in the footsteps of Toyota, which built South Africa's first hybrid passenger vehicle, but it has pulled the plug on the pioneering Prius. Beryl Oro, CGTN. Toxic smog gripping New Delhi has grown more intense today as farm fires rage in nearby fields despite a court-ordered ban, making India's capital the world's most polluted city once again. Pollution levels have risen since earlier this week after a brief respite and further mitigation measures are being discussed. But a plan to make rain via cloud seeding to battle the smog has been pushed back due to unfavourable weather. The city held the top spot on a real-time list of the world's most polluted cities today with an air quality index of just 5.09 around noon. This according to Swiss group IQ Air, which categorised the air quality as hazardous. I'm Basil Valentine. This has been Compass. I look forward to seeing you all at the same time tomorrow. Have a great day.